Why are we so obsessed with like the death knell of the rom-com? Or the death knell of anything. We're always saying something right. is dead, right? <laughs> Hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems, where every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way that pop culture has treated women in a given week. It's almost always terribly. This week, Hazel Sills is here with me. Hi, Hazel. Hi. And we are co-hosting alongside Jen Chaney, who's Vulture's TV columnist. Hi, Jen. Hi. Thank you for being here. Um, We're going to talk to Jen about a piece that she wrote this week called The Romantic Comedy is Not Dead, It's Just Not the Same as You Remember. And then later we'll get into how, during awards season in Trump's America, famous women are using the mic to voice dissent, and this week apparently have really awkward conversations about feminism at Sundance. Lastly, we'll talk about how and why female pop culture imagery, including Carrie Fisher and Cher Horowitz, has become central to the resistance. Jen, tell us a little bit, uh, for people who haven't read the piece, what, what your basic thesis was. Well, the piece was really a kickoff to a series that Vulture is doing right now called The Rom-Com Lives, which is obviously a counterargument to the notion that it is dead. Uh, and the piece is kind of laying the foundation for what the series is going to do, which is noting that there was a time not all that long ago when romantic comedies were really very prevalent, especially um, you know movie-wise, and were doing really well at the box office. And then interest from audiences and even interest from stars who normally would have signed on to those kinds of movies started to drop. And the number of romantic comedies from a mainstream perspective that we we used to see has undeniably gone down. Um, but that doesn't mean that the rom- romantic comedy as we know it is completely gone. It's just, it's flourishing in different areas. So we see indie films that are rom-coms and even more so, I think, television that is doing a lot of really interesting and unique things from a romantic comedy perspective. Um, and I also think that a lot of the the tropes and cliches that became so rampant in the rom-coms in, of the 90s and, and the 2000s, we're puncturing those a little bit more and, and subverting them and telling stories that are, you know, still light and fun, but that also I think have more honesty and authenticity in them than what we were accustomed to seeing back in the days when Julia Roberts was the queen of the box office. You mentioned how people have these like very fixed ideas of what rom-coms can be. And I'm just curious why people have those fixed ideas. Like you mentioned in your piece something like Obvious Child, which is a movie about someone getting an abortion. And it's also a rom-com. And I'm just curious why you think people are so attached to those rom-com stereotypes. Well, I think a lot of it, I mean, the romantic comedy is a tradition that obviously predates the 1990s, right? Um, So it's a genre that's been around for a really long time. And some of the same characteristics from the original ones back in the 30s and the 40s um, were carried through to the 90s. I mean, you think of a movie like Sleepless in Seattle, for example, which is really a celebration of those older films and bringing some of those traditions um, to what was then a modern uh, audience. Um, but I think those ideas, you know, over however many years, you know, decades, really, you watch those kinds of movies over and over and you get those ideas kind of ingrained in your brain in terms of not only what a romantic comedy is supposed to do and what it's supposed to look like and what it's supposed to achieve by the time it's over with, but even how we approach our own relationships. And I think that's something that you see um, shows like the Mindy Project uh, dealing with head on. Um, So I I think it's just the romantic comedies is something that we've 
and I would say especially women have absorbed into our brain cells after watching them so much <laughs> um, throughout our lives that you just it, it, it like basically just makes these norms that you realize at some point as you get older, like, wait, we don't we don't have to do it this way. We can tell a completely different kind of story. What's your favorite rom-com? I'm curious. I'm going to say two is a tie. That's a cheat to, to give you two answers. But <laughs> uh, I would say Moonstruck, which is a film that I never, ever yes. get tired of watching. It's just wonderful. Will you marry me? Well, we'll take the card away. Very good. Yeah, I mean, I want to go to the restaurant in that movie so badly. I don't think it exists anymore uh, for real, but um, I really wish I could go there. Uh, did it used to exist for real? I, I didn't think even it realize did. That. I believe it did. It's, called, it's the Grand Ticino, which I don't think was its actual name, but I thought they shot it in a real restaurant somewhere in New York. Oh, man, uh, Hazel, we got to go. I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I thought they did. Um, okay. And then uh, When Harry Met Sally, which I know is a, a cliche answer, but I just think that it's... Um, even though some of the ideas it has about, uh, you know, whether or not men and women can be friends seem kind of, uh, oversimplified and, and maybe out of date. Harry, we are just going to be friends. Okay. Great friends. It's the best thing. You realize of course that we can never be friends. Uh, I think it's just such an incredibly well-written romantic comedy. Uh, and I think it's one that people can kind of universally appreciate. And it's just, I think it's a perfect script. I think it's an absolutely perfect script. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite, Hazel? Oh, my favorite? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think lately, not just lately, but I, I think I really love You've Got Mail. Because oh. when I go back and I watch it, I think it's so incredibly relevant, not just for its time when it came out, but also now. Do you think we should meet? Meet? God. That sort of weird, like, switcheroo and not knowing who someone is. That happens um, a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe maybe it doesn't happen as much because the way people date online is so uh, photo-oriented now. Right. Like, people are using Tinder and stuff like that. But, so, yeah, it's it's weirdly both quaint in terms of, like, how people use the Internet to date, but it's also kind of relevant um, because people are different versions of themselves online or in chat rooms. Right. And yeah. That still exists. <laughs> <laughs> All the chat rooms that we're hanging out in. Yeah. My favorite is has always been my best friend's wedding. I'm obsessed with that movie. Yeah. I think that, to your point, Jen, is a per also a perfect script. Like, sometimes I just marvel at, like, how, like, funny and clever and tight and also, like, very moving it is. You have to be jello. You're never going to be jello. I don't know. I could watch that movie 600 times in a row. Well, I think um, what's what's interesting is that uh, I also think this depends on your age, too, because I think whatever the answer to what's your favorite rom-com is usually going to be something you saw when you were um, young or a teenager or early 20s. You know what I mean? Like I, I saw mm -hmm. the I saw the movies you guys mentioned when I was a little bit older and I hated both of them. <laughs> 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 and I yeah. think it's because I had gotten to a different point in my life where I was like, this is bullshit. I have no time for this. That's so, so funny. I love that. Okay, maybe in like 10 years, I'll hate my best friend's wedding. But that's like how I feel about <laughs> girls know. or something. Like right. now, where I'm right. like, what are you doing? <laughs> you, I'll tell you, you'll never hate my best friend's wedding. Even if you watch it and you watch it from a more critical perspective, you'll never hate it because you loved it so much at a certain point that you'll probably never hate it. We'll be back with more Lady Problems after this ad. 
So you list a lot of the tropes in your article that are very historically rom-commy, like making out in the rain. Jen, what are some of your least favorite? Like what, what makes you cringe? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the meet cute. Uh, and I feel like those have kind of fallen out of favor a little bit more than some of the other tropes because they're just so absurd and ridiculous. Uh, I actually don't mind the making out and or mourning a breakup in the rain just because it's so associated in my mind with John Cusack and I enjoy it when it happens to John Cusack that I'm like, all right, I'll give that a pass. Um, but I also just, you know, the, the very pat happy ending that really annoys me. And I think that's, and I talked about that in the piece that that's one of the things that I think has changed most noticeably is that a lot of the movies that we watch that are romantic in nature do not end with the couple being together necessarily. It's not a foregone conclusion. And uh, I, I like that. I like that change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's always why I defended 500 Days of Summer. Mm-hmm. I don't know. People really hated that movie, but it's like it's about <laughs> our producer is giving me a terrible look. <laughs> <laughs> but um, because of the ending and because, you know, they, they don't end up together. And I don't know. It just felt like a realistic breakup. Yeah. I love that movie for that reason. And also because it is it's still all of the things that you want a ro- romantic comedy to be, which is light and fun and exuberant and, and joyful, even though, you know, going in, there's only 500 days. Like, it's not going to be a forever relationship. It's a lot of days, though. It is a lot yeah. of days. <laughs> Good quality days. Well, not all yeah. good quality. <laughs> so, oh, so Jen, what are some of the like big changes you've seen in rom coms, and 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 which are the ones that you welcome, and which are the ones that you know you don't think should stick around? Like, uh, I know you mentioned in your piece that you know Amy Schumer's casting in Trainwreck, Trainwreck was sort of you know unconventional because she's sort of like the sloppy person who can't commit, rather than you know Seth Rogen or something, <laughs> right? that's a movie where it almost felt like they were taking what was the usual kind of Judd Apatow movie and just subbing in a female character for the male character, which is kind of cool, I guess, but it, it didn't feel like it didn't feel like they were doing anything that radically different. If you thought about it a little more critically, um, it was still funny and fun. And I, I like Amy Schumer, but um, I think really building character in a more nuanced and specific way. I'm really excited to see like on Insecure, for example, which is Issa Rae's show. And not only is she the star, but she's really the driving force behind it. And so you have someone who's telling a story about an African-American woman's dating experience that it feels very authentic, even though I don't know that experience. It feels like genuine because she knows what she's talking about that kind of thing to me is really exciting just bringing different voices and and and, you know for the longest time the rom-com was really very dominated by always about white people and I think Mm -hmm. that's still true to an extent but the less that we see of that the more interesting I think the romantic comedy becomes I'm a big best man holiday yeah oh yeah I love those movies (laughs) love um, so Hazel and I were talking too, and a lot of the newer, in terms of in, the ones that are in theaters, a lot of the newer rom-coms have gotten kind of broy. Like there's that awkward moment and the wedding ringer and think like a man. And we were wondering if that was like, do you think that's like a wedding crashes f- effect or is that, what do you think that's about? Yeah, I mean, it, I, there was a period where they were like the broy ones were really dominating the wedding crashers. I mentioned Judd Apatow, but um, you know, the Forty Year Old Virgin, which I'm a huge fan of that movie, um, and Knocked Up, and you know, I Love You, Man. I mean, it was like the rom com sort of started to be more about 
guys, uh, and, and to some extent, and even in their relationships, like I Love You Man was a rom-com about two, two men falling in love with each other, really, um, mm-hmm. in a platonic way. Uh, so I think there's some of that. And I think it's, you know, if you look at this from a business perspective, and I don't know if this is valid or not, but you will always hear people say, well, we want to try and bring in the broadest audiences and uh, women will go see guy movies, but guys won't go see wi- movies that women like, which I think is kind of <laughs> bullshit. But people, they, this is something that I have heard people say and read people say in Hollywood all the time. And I think that's part of it. If they want the romantic comedy to succeed in their minds, if they somehow make it seem like it has a little bit more uh, appeal to the heterosexual male, then that means it's going to do better at the box office. And I think that's part of it, too. Oh, they need to stay away from our rom-coms. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do you think rom-coms are faring in general in the box office? Because it seems like the shift, you know, towards TV or like indie cinema implies that these sort of traditional rom-com storylines or even alternative rom-com storylines just aren't faring as well financially. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are just there aren't as many being made, first of all. And I think it's because they uh, the studios have have seen that they weren't doing as well. But I think the most clear illustration of that was last year. You had two sequels to extremely successful romantic comedies from the past. uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2 and Bridget Jones's Baby both came out and they really didn't do that great. Bridget Jones did much better um, overseas. you know, in, in other markets than it did here in North America. But I think that was both a function of maybe people not being as interested in those kinds of movies, but also waiting for a really long time to revisit those characters. Cause a lot of time, a lot of time had passed. And I think whoever the core audiences were for those probably had moved on by the time they got around to making those movies. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about the Bridget Jones, the third Bridget Jones? I ate that shit up. You, you know what? <laughs> I still haven't watched it. I still haven't really? watched it. I have a screener oh my for God. it, and I still haven't watched it. I will say that, like, I went in extremely cynical, and I was cynical for, like, a first the first hour, and then I was bawling by the end. Really? <laughs> <laughs> now I'm thinking of rom-coms that I actually do want sequels to. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Like my what? My Best Friend's Wedding 2. My Best Friend's Wedding 2. <laughs> Please, if you're out there. Someone. Yeah. Um, do you think, like, what are, what are rom-coms in the age of Trump going to look like, Jen? What do you think? Oh, boy, that's a great question. Uh, In fact, somebody was asking me something similar on Twitter. Like, are we going to be hungering more for just pure escapism? And would that be a way in which maybe the rom-com would make a have a resurgence at the box office? Um, Because people would want lighter fare that has absolutely no uh, connection to politics whatsoever. And I think you could make that argument. But I think it's hard. It's hard right now to know whether that's going to be the case. I think there's going to be kind of a a split in general across pop culture where you want the escapist fair, but I think a lot of artists and creators are also going to feel really compelled to discuss and and deal with some of the issues that are being raised by um, the new president. So I think you're going to see both both lines of of, uh, storytelling kind of taking hold. Um, So I guess the short answer to your question is I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I don't know about you, but even as a culture writer, I feel every day that push and pull. Like, do I write yeah. something to make people forget or do I engage with this every day? You know, it's like I don't even know. Maybe the La La Land backlash <laughs> <laughs> will show us that people want they don't just want escapism. Right. I don't know. Yeah. The mm-hmm. movie's doing well enough that I feel like maybe if anything, it might encourage them to make more movies like that. Um 
But what you're just saying about the Trump stuff, I mean, I completely agree. And I wrote a piece not too long ago about how I can't watch anything without somehow being reminded of what's going on. Even benign, Mm -hmm. like children's movies that should not have anything to do with what's going on will remind me of it in some way. So it's really hard to turn that part of your brain off and and completely escape, even when you want to. Even now, like, fucking Finding Dory is ruined. (laughs) I know, (laughs) jeez. Everything is ruined. This was your idea to talk about the way that women in Hollywood are now using. I mean, they always have been, but I think obviously much more than ever now they're using um, their their platform as a way to speak out specifically against Trump this week against his policies at the SAG Awards. I want to talk first about this Sundance conversation that took place that has been getting a lot of coverage. Um, basically, it was, I think, Salma Hayek and Shirley MacLaine, Jessica Williams and uh, Jill Soloway, along with a few other people, had this extremely... It's interesting because most of these sort of like women in film conversations are kind of bullshit, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, like everyone's on the same side and they're all just like, yeah, there should be more women in film. And then everyone (laughs) goes home and like feels really good about themselves. Um, But this one got uncomfortable and I think it was a good thing. They they started having really uncomfortable conversations about intersectional feminism and, and Salma Hayek was kind of undercutting Jessica Williams when she was talking about, you know, feeling like as a black woman, her experience was very different. What What did you think about that whole thing? I agree with you that I think it's healthy to have those conversations and to have more push and pull around it. I found it interesting that it seemed like different people took away different things from the way the conversation was portrayed. And it's hard to tell. I was just reading about it. Um, and, and it's when you're not in the room, really seeing expressions, hearing tones and voices, sometimes the nuance around these things could get lost. But um, there was one critic I noticed on Twitter who happens to be male, um, who said he thought that he made a reference to, you know, somebody not making eye contact. And that seemed like they didn't want to engage in conversation. And I think he was referring to Jessica Williams. And I was like, See, I took away the opposite, that she started to talk and she was getting steamrolled over and not being able to express herself. And I thought Jill Soloway kind of came to her defense and said, listen, we talk over black women too much. Let you finish your thought. And then Salma Hayek, as you suggested, I I felt like was like, let me tell you, I I get it. You know, Um, that was the vibe I got from the whole thing. Um, And I don't know. I don't know what the kind of what's the next step after a conversation like that. Um, But. Yeah, I mean, I thought I think it's healthy to continue having those conversations, especially um, with people of different races and ethnic backgrounds and, and forcing people who wouldn't normally engage to actually have to think about these things um, from an uncomfortable position. Yeah, I think it's really like it's a like the fact that this was a conversation in which someone said, like, look, we're all women. We all have each other's backs and we all experience the same thing. And then that was pushed against. Like, for me, I see that as a good step. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rachel and I were talking uh, before about, you know, different women who've used their platform as actresses to talk about feminism, especially in award speeches. And we were kind of looking through history. And I was reminded of Patricia Arquette's Oscar speech when she won for Boyhood, I believe. We have fought for everybody else's equal rights. It's our time to have wage equality once and for all and equal rights for women in the United States of America. She made this big speech about how, you know, women should be paid as much as men. And then 
she was actually criticized a little bit for it because she didn't acknowledge, you know, the intersectionality of that and how people of different races or women of different, you know, social status or different levels of Hollywood uh, get paid less than white women. And so I think that sort of reminded me of it where it's like it's not as simple um, a situation as, you know, we are all in this together. It should be you know, we need to work to acknowledge each other's differences. And that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's just that we need to talk about that openly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, in that Patricia Arquette speech, uh, if I remember correctly, she said something like, we fought for everybody else's rights. Now it's time to fight for ours or something to that effect. And I think that was a really, I think she was in the moment and maybe that's not quite the way she meant to express it, but that was a really charged way to put it as if women were, you know, a separate category from African-Americans. And now it's our turn when, you know, there's different substrata within that. Um, so, yeah, that that's a great point. Yeah. And I think I mean, I, what surprised me about that Sundance conversation was that Salma Hayek was so like out of it. I mean, it's is it because she married a white billionaire? Like, <laughs> I don't know. But she was like, I mean, she is not a white woman. And the fact that she was like, stop being a victim, Jessica, like, you're more than that. I was like, have you just lost your complete, like, you went and married this super rich dude and just like forgot everything about what it means to be a woman of color? It was just kind of, that surprised me a lot. Well, I I was taking from it that she thought because she's Latina that she could understand the African-American experience as well because she's a, she is a person of color, but. But it's still different. I mean, <laughs> of course, of course, it's different. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought something was getting getting missed in that conversation for sure. Yeah. I'd love to know what like a couple of days later what Jessica Williams thinks about that whole thing. I hope someone talks to her about it. Um, I hope she wants yeah, to talk about it. I know. We should try to get her on. <laughs> <laughs> More lady problems after this break. Jen, in award speeches or in op-eds or or whatever the case may be, what, what responsibilities do you think that women in the entertainment industry have to speak out, especially now? I think this is such a different moment than we've seen in the past because, you know, we're accustomed to the normal backlash that any celebrity gets, whether it's a man or a woman, but maybe women a little bit more so when they speak out during an award show and people say, oh, celebrities are so liberal. No one wants to hear this. But I don't know about you guys, but when I was watching the SAG Awards the other night, I, I felt like there was a slightly different tenor in the way that people were talking about, um, specifically the the Muslim ban, um, mm-hmm. where, first of all, there was no mention of political parties. And I don't even think anybody said Trump. I don't think his name was spoken. And, and it felt very deliberate, like they were talking about Voldemort. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, but I, I feel like they're talking about things that most reasonable, decent people would agree with. And I think that as we've seen from the protests, that a, that a good number of Americans, if not the majority, are in a, agreement with it as well. So it feels, it doesn't feel like they're coming so much from a place that's way on the left to me. And maybe this is my own bias, but as much as uh, just what should be kind of normal, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, so I think at least for the time being, I think it might be a little bit easier for people to, to speak. You know, I mean, we saw Meryl Streep do it at the Golden Globes. So Hollywood is crawling with outsiders and foreigners. 
And if we kick them all out, you'll have nothing to watch but football and mixed. Trump immediately arts. criticized her, which was no surprise. But I, I didn't necessarily feel like the whole public. I mean, people nitpick certain things about that speech, but I felt like the, the basic gist of what she was saying, most people were like, yeah, that seemed fair right. for her to say that, you know? Yeah, I just feel like, I mean, we even just mentioned it, where the current political climate is so unbelievably distracting. Like, you can't do anything outside of it or without mentioning it. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you would have an award ceremony where almost everyone is bringing it up in their speeches, it that everyone's doing that, like right. everyone's bringing it into their daily conversations. So it seems like less of this, you know, uh, individual speech that someone's made about something it feels like a collective energy that just sort of made its way to a hollywood stage mm -hmm. it's like, almost weirder if they don't talk about it at yeah this point. <laughs> that's what i was just say yeah it, there's almost like if, if i'm an oscar nominee going into the ceremony thinking i have a chance at winning it, it feels like if you don't say something you're going to be judged poorly more so than if you actually did Totally. Uh, yeah, you look like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> With your little golden right, statue. Right, like, I'm so happy for myself. <laughs> but then there is, like, there is definitely a line where it goes too far, like the Tom Hiddleston oh my God. Sudan But speech. that didn't even have anything to do with, that was more about him than it was what's happening. Mm -hmm. Right, you know what yeah. I mean? And that was the problem. Yeah, I, I think that, that, that that's a really good sort of example of when it when you take it too far and you try to like make something he was just grabbing he was just <laughs> oh i'll never forget it it was so beautiful <laughs> but yeah i think i don't know I, I just wonder like if if what the oscars will be like i mean especially now that farhadi can't come if it's if there's going to be a ban if people should not go like i don't even know what how that's gonna turn out yeah i mean I expect people to go and to be very expressive. Uh, I mean, I mean, here's the other thing. Like, I can't even imagine what's going to be going on. It's not that long from now. It's in a few weeks. But I can't imagine what's going to be happening in five minutes. Like, every time I walk <laughs> away from my laptop, I'm like, what shit went down while I went to the bathroom? Like, I just, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I can't even imagine what issues may have come up in the next two or three weeks that could change the entire tenor of, of, of what we're talking about. But I, I, my sense is that it will go forward because it, it always has, even under dire circumstances. Um, but people will be very outspoken and, you know, busting out the pins and, and things on the red carpet to express their views and, and uh, not being silent when it's their turn to be on the stage. Is there a speech that stands out to you, like, historically, that was extremely... Like, Hazel and I were looking up some speeches yesterday, and there were ones that we didn't even know about. Like, Hazel found one, Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins, like, calling out the government before presenting an award at the Oscars oh, in yeah. 1993. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. We'd like to call attention to 266 Haitians that are being held in Guantanamo Bay by the United States government. Their crime, testing positive to the HIV virus. Well, I mean, and this isn't a woman, unfortunately, for the purposes of the theme of the podcast, but um, <laughs> we'll <laughs> allow it. OK. <laughs> I mean, the one that stands out the most is, is Michael Moore when he um, he got all the documentary nominees to come up on stage and then denounced President Bush uh, and, and that was and, and was getting booed um, from from some corners of the room and it was difficult to ascertain was it coming some people said it was coming from backstage where the teamsters were and some people said it was actually coming from certain factions of the audience um and that was at a time when we were at war and so speaking negatively against the president for for some people that felt inappropriate and then the people who were up on stage didn't know what he was going to say and they felt like they were suddenly being uh you know 
pulled into a narrative they didn't want to be a part of necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one stands out in my mind. That whole Oscar ceremony was a great ceremony. There was just a lot of surprises and unpredictable things that happened. Uh, I think that was 2002. Um, but that one stands out in my mind because that was a very that was a big newsworthy event and a polarizing kind of moment where someone spoke out and was yeah. kind of getting shouted down by some people. Yeah, now that we're talking about this, I'm getting like fired up about watching the <laughs> You Oscar. wanna make a speech right now? You wanna <laughs> get on the table an and make a speech, speech in the podcast room? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted I mean about watching the Oscars. I oh. just, I want like some crazy shit to go down. Yeah. I mean I really do hope people are and they probably will, but it's good that people would you know, be wearing pins and be talking about it on the red carpet because, you know, there could be someone in America who isn't on Twitter and Facebook 24-7 or isn't paying, <laughs> has been in a coma for right. five years, state of has just woken up and is panic. watching the Oscars and is like, what's happening? And I don't know. I want every inch of every award show to be, to be you know, filled with people who are just screaming mm-hmm. about the state of America. So just Endless screams. Yeah. <laughs> I, I vow to the two of you guys that if I ever come out of a coma on the day of the Academy Awards, like the first <laughs> thing I'm doing is watch the Oscars. <laughs> I don't want to talk to my loved ones. I want to watch you. <laughs> Honestly, that's like what I would do. <laughs> Briefly, I want to talk about, um, you brought up a really another great point over email, Jen, that that there have been a lot of women who have become like pop culture uh, sort of signs of the resistance. And, you know, literally they're on people's protest signs, but also people, it, it's it's a meme or I've seen it on Facebook. There's the Cher Horowitz. And in conclusion, may I please remind you that it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. I've seen that a lot recently. Yeah. Um, as a clueless scholar, which I know you are, <laughs> what are your feelings on this? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think it's wonderful. Um, I haven't asked Amy Heckerling how she feels about it necessarily, but I, I, based on my connection to her, I would think that she probably think it's, thinks it's pretty cool as well. Um, you know, I went to the March, uh, in Washington, um, and, and I'm sure you guys have seen this as well. I mean, the, the more than anything, I saw Princess Leia over Mm -hmm. and over again. Uh, the signs that said a woman's place is in the resistance, um, you know, other things with rebel, rebel, rebel and things like that. And, uh, I think it was Vanity Fair who did an interview with Todd Fisher, her brother, um, asking him about that specifically, that she's become this kind of symbol of, of this effort and, and of this movement, um, against Trump by, by women in particular. And he was just crying, talking about it. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's sad that, that Carrie Fisher died, but you know that she would be just thrilled that she's being, um, that she's there in spirit in that way. And, and uh, I really loved seeing all those signs that day that I was there. We've also been seeing a lot of like Hunger Games or Harry Potter references. Those to me feel a little bit less <laughs> moving. Maybe it's because yeah. they feel too like they're already about like dark forces in the universe or apocalyptic landscape. So it's like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Let, like, let's take something like, uh, well, let's, I like, guess subvert. Star Wars kind of counts as well. That's but. true. I don't know. Something about Cher Horowitz, like, she's such, like, a wholesome, fun (laughs) girl. And then, like, now she's being radicalized on signs. And I really like that. (laughs) Well, I just like like the idea that she gets it better than Trump does. Yes. Yes, as well. Yeah. That's so true. (laughs) Wow. I've seen seen Mean Girls ones, too, um, here and there. 
What were the Mean Girls ones? I wish I could remember. There was I, I can't remember which Mean Girls quote it was. I've seen a couple like you cannot sit at our table maybe in some context, but Oh, okay. Um, like stop trying to make Trump happen. Oh, that's good. Hazel. <laughs> yeah, that and that's really good too, but I don't even think that was the one that I saw. I can't remember. I just I love the idea of taking these these teen movies and specifically the girls from them and and elevating them in this way. Um and it just it speaks to what I think we all already knew, which is they had voices that deserve to be heard and taken seriously. And this is really putting them in the context in which that's happening. And I like that. There has been like a bit of a backlash I've seen on Twitter. Like there are a lot of people who take to Twitter and make all these like Voldemort and, you know, Dementor references. And people are like, dude, like stop fucking talking about Harry Potter. We are literally dying. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wonder like sort of the flip side of it is like, when does it become non-useful? I, I just personally, I have to maintain some kind of sense of humor. Otherwise, I just won't be able to get out of bed at all. Uh, and it's a struggle as it is. So, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, the, especially these pop culture things that have been phenomena for years and part of our childhoods, like it's it's a comfort. And to use this thing that's been a comfort uh, as, as a galvanizing force is really, I think, is powerful. Um, and I think you can do it in a way that doesn't undermine the seriousness of what's going on. I, I don't think any of the signs I saw during the Women's March or, um, you know, over the weekend when people were protesting at the airports, I don't think any of them were undermining the seriousness of, of what's going on. That is definitely a line that we're all straddling to. Like, when can we be funny? Are we allowed to be funny? Is there anything funny going on? Like, right. I personally, feel, I mean, at literally by the hour, I'm like, wait, <laughs> <laughs> should I be joking or no? <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that we're all having that issue, I guess, is helpful, right? I mean, right, mm-hmm. yeah. maybe we'll be more forgiving of each other when we make mistakes, although, you know, probably not. <laughs> we need to, we need to be funny. We need to make jokes because in the apocalypse, like in the distant landscape, like jokes will be illegal. So right. we need to make jokes. A Get them all out while you can. Yeah, That's exactly. Such a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> and when I run into you in the underground tunnels when we're trying to get out of here. <laughs> We'll have a good laugh about them. I'm crying. (laughs) It'll be so meta. We'll laugh about the laughing in the tunnels. (laughs) Jen, thank you so much. This was so fun to talk to you about the end of the world. Where can we find your your piece? My piece is on vulture.com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at J. And it was really fun being on with you guys. I really had a good time and, and uh, hopefully I can come back again at some point. Absolutely. That was Lady Problems for the week. Thank you, Hazel Sills, for co-hosting. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at Lady Problems Pod, and you can also ask us a lady problem or leave us a message on the Lady Problems hotline, 205 205- 677-5239 that's 205-677-LADY and if you like this episode please be sure to give us a rating or leave us a review on iTunes it helps people find us and helps us feel we are not insignificant specs I'm Rachel Handler and I'll see you next week this episode of Lady Problems was produced by Mukta Mohan, Michael Kitano, James T. Green, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. Subscribe to all of our other MTV podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your favorite shows.